So I'm not preaching through any particular book of the Bible like Eric tends to do, and so this is a topical message. Um, I'm leveraging a text. The topic is the God who speaks, um, and it, that really, the sort of the overall reason for the topic is it is has been for several months now um, an amazing topic for me as I spend time in his word and get to understand who he is. So I'm primarily sharing a message that like, is important to me, and so I'll apologize in advance if, if it isn't as encouraging to you. Um, and Hebrews is one of my favorite books. When I, we, we attended Evergreen for quite a few years. The men's Bible study they had at Evergreen that met once a week, I think we spent three years in the book of Hebrews. Um, it was led by a guy, like, I don't know if a couple of you may know Chris Simpson. He was a member at Evergreen, became an elder. He left Intel. He was an engineer, left Intel, went to seminary at Westminster out east and is now uh, pastoring churches. And uh, we, we got so detailed that, that you know, you know, basically you kind of get the announcement of here's what we're going to be studying in Hebrews this week. Here's the chapter or the verses. When you take three years, like I think one Tuesday we covered a comma, right? I mean, seriously, like, we covered a comma. Like, why was there a comma in that verse, right? Pardon? Yeah, yeah, so yeah, I, I'm not going to. Um, so I spent a lot of time in Hebrews, and it, it obviously is a book I thoroughly love because it so elevates Jesus Christ, and it does such a beautiful job of tying together the Old Testament and the New Testament in light of who Christ is. So let's pray. Um, That's enough of my preamble. Let's pray, and then I'll read the text so we can get started. Gracious God in heaven, thank you that uh, you have spoken, you do speak, and you will continue to speak to your people by your Spirit. Um, Speak to us, Lord. Now, give us ears to hear. Reveal yourself to us that we might know you more and love you more. In Christ's name, amen. So Hebrews 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He, Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Um, A lot of very obvious things I'm going to say here, so just by way of reminder, because I need to be reminded of it on a regular basis, um, God talks to his people to reveal himself. That without God revealing himself to us, we wouldn't necessarily know who he is, who he truly is. We can see the works of his hands around him, as scripture declares, in terms of the beauty of nature around us. But to know him, to know his heart, to know who he is, um, we need need more than that. Um, As I said, this message is delivered to me first. I'm not calling out any specific gap in your understanding or your... um, application of the gospel. I'm simply expanding a little bit more on some obvious gaps and failures that exist in my regular experience. I hope that if any of you have the same problems, you could be encouraged by it. 
And I also uh, will touch on what I think is a main point of true encouragement that we all have and that we all share together on a regular basis of, of God speaking to his, to his people. Um, so let's be clear at the outset. We know God because of his scripture, right? We, don't, we can't really know God apart from that. In scripture, he reveals um, right at the start that he started everything. You know, some of you guys are in my older kids' Sunday school class, and we're going through really an overview of all of Scripture that is going to be redemptive history. And I don't know if some of you guys remember, what was the first verse we started at in our Sunday school, uh, new, new Sunday school lesson? We started at Genesis 1-1, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? He starts out by saying he started the whole thing. Now, obviously, God told this to Moses, who is the author of Genesis, um, since Moses wasn't there at the beginning, right? Moses wasn't around to, to see that and, and could write it down as history. Um, and amazingly, as we talked about in our Sunday school class, um, it, it was great as we walked through the, the creation uh, narrative there, God spoke creation into existence, right? It's through his speaking that the heavens and the earths and the earth was created. That's only when he got to man that God actually did a little more than speaking, that he got his hands dirty, that God took the, the, the dirt of the ground and formed man, that he did more than purely speak to create man, but he did speak his breath into man to give him life. Just the beauty of that is just unbelievable. So scripture is the record of, of uh, what God, who God is and, and how he works. Um, we obviously refer to it as the Chronicle of Redemptive History, authored by God himself and the Holy Spirit, preserved by God, um, that we might know him. And again, folks, it's actual history, right? Um, and I, these are things I have to remind myself. It's the best kind of history. It's the history that allows those who did not live in the time to see it, to live it, to experience it, and to understand it on some level. Um, I think as Americans, we tend to, like, ignore history, especially, like, if it's not American history. We don't realize that we are the product of thousands of years of human history in one way, shape, or form, that we didn't just kind of spring up out of, uh, out of this current time and place, um, that we are products of the past. And the beauty of Scripture is that in many of the events recorded, um, God engages with people. Um, and that's the truly amazing part. And these are actual living, real people. Scripture is a clear record of that. Um, it's God's record of our understanding of who he is and what he does, what he has done that we might know him. Um, and as I read the scriptures, I need to remind myself that these are real flesh and blood people. They really lived. These aren't characters in a Harry Potter story or a Lord of the Rings story or any of the, the great you know, books that, and, and fictional series that Eric likes to, likes to use as, as his examples or that um, Ransom likes to read. Um, these aren't fictional characters. These are real flesh and blood people that lived. Um, I'm going to spend a little bit of time talking about the interaction that God had in His Word. Um, the New Testament read or the Old Testament reading this morning was out of Numbers, and it's um, it, there's parts of it that are just crazy amazing to me. So, remind you here: basically, uh, Moses marries a Cushite woman. Not necessarily a good thing to do. In old Israel, right? Marrying outside the family, for lack of a better word. Do you think, you know, Aaron and Miriam are a little upset with that? 
and are kind of talking behind Moses' back in regards to that. Um, there's a lot going on here. So they're, Aaron and, and Miriam are obviously speaking out against Moses. There's a lot of potential topics for a sermon here. There's Moses marrying outside the tribe. We could spend time talking about that. There's talking behind Moses' back and the potential fermenting of dissension that occurs because of that. There's Moses' meekness, right? The the, the text truly calls out that Moses is meek, right? So Moses is the leader and he's meek. He's got these two other leaders talking behind his back. A good, strong leader in today's world would call them out and tell them to back down, and, but Moses is meek. He doesn't, he, doesn't, he doesn't act that way, right? You could have a whole sermon topic on how the meekness of Moses and Potter allowed this, all this kind of stuff to happen. There's a lot going on. But there's so much going on that God got involved, right? Um, he called them to the, you know, God gets involved, and he calls all three of them to the tent of meeting. Like, have you ever had that situation at work or at school or something where you're like, come to the office right now? You don't know what it's about. No, it's just you need to come to the office right now. Is that ever really a good thing? Do we ever kind of look at that as you're being called to the office to get a promotion and a raise? No, probably not. There's probably something else going on. Um, so they get the call to the office uh, meeting kind of request. Um, and God asked Moses and Miriam why they're not afraid to speak against God's servant Moses. And by way of explanation, God explicitly describes how he talks to prophets. He talks to prophets in dreams and visions, right? So a huge chunk of the scriptures that we have are prophetic in nature, and they're delivered. God basically said he explains the mechanism by which he delivers it. I deliver it through visions and dreams. But he says he contrasts Moses, who he speaks mouth to mouth with, and that Moses has seen his form, right? So he contrasts the way he communicates with Moses to the prophets. And he kind of asks, why do you question Moses, who I talk to face to face? Then God leaves. Um, Part of that could be like, boy, Aaron and Miriam really got a big dressing down. The thing that's amazing to me is what an incredible privilege for them. They were called to the tent of meeting. Yeah, Yeah, they messed up. But God called them to the tent of the meeting to talk to them. That's crazy. That's amazing. Take a step back from what God was even said to them in his chastising and disciplining them. He says, the prophets who, you know, you guys need to listen to and pay attention to, I speak to them in visions and dreams and motions I talk to face to face. What did he just do with Miriam and Aaron? He talked to them face to face. Or as close as you can get and not be burned into, burned to a cinder. That's amazing. That even in that discipline, he does that. He is speaking to them more directly than he himself has just said he speaks to prophets. What does that say about God? The God who would do that and less about the stuff that Miriam and Aaron and those guys have done. Absolutely amazing. Later in the chapter, um, you can read it later on, but um, uh, God disciplines them. He gives Miriam leprosy. um, And Moses is pleading and begging with God for her to be healed, right? I mean, Moses actually ends one of his prayers with just the simple statement, please, just please, God. He's, he's begging God to heal him, to heal her. And, and God answers and says, if her father was upset with her, 
he would discipline her for at least seven days. So she'll be sick for seven days, and then she'll be healed. So God is lowering himself to the level of, so if Miriam's dad were mad at her, she'd at least be punished for seven days. So I'll let her have leprosy for seven days, and then I'll heal her. Crazy. Absolutely nuts. It's too easy for me to try and read this passage and try to figure out who responded rightly and who responded wrongly and what's the right way I should, you know, if I were in that circumstance, how would I have done it and how should I have done it and what should Aaron and Miriam have done and Moses and all that kind of stuff. Not necessarily bad in and of itself, right? But it's not enough. Um, it's like I, how I read most things, though. I try to, even, even when I'm trying to insert myself into the story, I, I can't help, and it, part of it is just having been brought up in an educational system where you kind of have to absorb knowledge. I have to kind of weigh everything that I read and take in. In some ways, I have to judge it, right? I have to judge whether I think that that makes sense or not or whether that's true or whether I can understand it and whether I can add it to my knowledge of things that I need to understand. I just can't help it as a human being, to judge too much of what I read. And unfortunately, that's what I bring to the reading of the scriptures. I try and judge it instead of being judged, right? And not judging necessarily a simple, here's what, where I am wrong kind of way. Um, that judgment's already plain. Uh, left to myself, I'm a hard-hearted, stiff-necked, blind, deaf, and dumb as to who God is. Absolutely true. Um, I'm just like all the idiots that I see recorded in the Bible, and I'll say idiots in quotes, um, but I don't have to stop there. Scripture is God's revelation of himself, and I need to be more oriented to that truth. God is speaking with me in his word, not just to me. He is revealing himself. In revealing himself, he is revealing the most holy, the most perfect, the most patient, the most merciful, the most gracious, the most loving being ever. He's revealing himself that I might know him more and therefore love him more. Because the more you know God, you just can't help but love him. I am like Aaron and Miriam, questioning and grumbling people's bad choices, particularly the bad choices of the people that I live with and love, right? Sometimes behind their back, in my own head, and sometimes face-to-face -face with them. Um, and God doesn't simply punish us or tell us we're wrong or simply make us feel guilty. He engages. He talks to us through his word and by his spirit. He really does speak with us. Um, yes, I can easily show how sinful we are and by contrast how good he is. But the main benefit there is to show how desperately we need Jesus. That not to be just left there, but to rely totally on him. What amazes me in the passage in Numbers is how God leads Aaron and Miriam kind of more to a core of what there really was wrong. Um, it wasn't really about the gossiping and the trying to potentially undermine Moses, though Moses was obviously wronged in this. It's not that they should apologize to Moses for grumbling. It's not even that they should be afraid to speak against Moses because Moses talks to God, so Moses is more important than you. Um, no, it's about God. He engages with them and lets them see they're fundamentally doubting him, right? 
Aaron and Miriam, you know I speak to Moses face to face. Do you think I don't know what's going on in Moses' life? Do you think I don't know that he married a Cushite? I'm here present. Think about the context of Israel in that time. I'm here present with you every day. I provide for all your daily needs. I talk to Moses. Whatever Moses has done, good or bad, I'll deal with it. Aaron and Miriam were doubting that God would handle this Moses marriage situation. And isn't that the root for all of us? We doubt God because of what we see or don't see in our lives or in others, because of what we have or what we don't have in the circumstances of our lives or the lives of the ones we love and care about. We doubt that God is really as holy, as good, as loving, as perfect as the Scripture says he is. We are doubting what God says. It started in the garden when the serpent asked, did God really say? That's where it starts. God records in his word how he engages over and over again with a hard-hearted, stiff-necked people. He doesn't always, his people don't always understand. His people rarely respond correctly. But that doesn't stop him from engaging. And his engagement takes time. He is incredibly patient, long-suffering. His love is steadfast. It can't be moved or shaken. The Old Testament text we read this morning was roughly 1,500 years before Jesus was born. That's a really long time in human terms. And God kept at it the whole time. It's too easy for us to read the books of the Old Testament and see all the ways that Israel was faithless, foolish, evil, wrong. The faithful people are rare and never completely faithful and pure. They often think wrong things, do wrong things. And I tend to see that way too much, in part because there is so much of it. The faithlessness, the forgetfulness, and grumbling of Israel throughout the journey in the desert to the promised land. Israel's fear when it got to the promised land. How everyone sought their own way to the detriment of all during the period of the judges. Israel's foolish desire to have a king like all the other nations. God wasn't enough for them. And the good and far too often bad of the kings of Israel, the divided kingdom, the exiles, the rejection of the masters of the prophets, over and over and over again. And then one of my favorite books of the Old Testament is Jonah. It's absolutely beautiful. This is a guy who completely rejects. He's, Jonah's flat out. God, I'm not going to go there because you're going to, I know you, you're going to forgive those people. I don't want you to forgive those people. How, how brutally honest. We tend to focus way too much on, could Jonah have been swallowed by a big fish and stayed inside there and totally miss the idea that God was still working on this guy. And is there anything in the book of Jonah that says anything good about Jonah? No, not a single thing. The only thing you can say potentially good about Jonah is he probably wrote it later. And he was honest. That's the only good thing that can be said about Jonah in the book of Jonah. It's beautiful. Because what it says more about God is the beauty of it, not because of what it really says about Jonah. So um, it's probably obvious to you by now how wrongly I tend to view this history, these people. These people were a hot mess throughout all of the Bible. You know, the book of Mark, one of my favorite books, uh, one of my favorite gospels, because nobody gets it. 
Nobody. The disciples are clueless during the whole book. It's almost like a Three Stooges episode, right? These guys, these guys are idiots. The only people who tend to get who Jesus is are the demons. The demons know who he is. None of the human beings do. It's amazing. The God who is patient with these people over centuries, who speaks with them over and over again, who speaks with them in their history, reminding them of who, of what he has done, calls them back to come to him, tells them what will happen because of their faithlessness and what he will do to redeem them. The God who speaks with his people in their circumstances and through his prophets. I need to remind myself that over thousands of years, God worked in and through his people to bring about that ultimate revealing of himself, Jesus Christ. And as our text in Hebrews says, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. If we want to understand who God is, look to Jesus Christ. It's beautiful and divine. The simple words, did God really say, uttered by the serpent in the garden that started us on this terrible fall, there's a beautiful, simple answer to that question that the serpent asks. You know, we're, Eric is going through the Gospel of John right now. And go to the beginning of the, the Gospel of John. It's, in, in part, a beautiful response to the serpent's question. So, you know, the serpent asks, did God really say? Here's John's response. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. What God said is Jesus Christ. That's the answer to the, to the serpent in the garden. That's what God says, Jesus Christ. And words in his scripture and in the person of his son, the word of God, is what he is using to restore us to himself, to give us eyes of faith to see him. The Gospels all give us rich, beautiful views of God speaking with people. All the encounters that Jesus has in the gospel, recorded in the Gospels, they record the very words of God in all kinds of situations, preaching to crowds, speaking his, with his mother at a wedding, speaking with his disciples in public and in private, speaking with Pharisees, Gentiles, Romans, and with his father. Eventually, Eric will get to my favorite part of the Gospel of John is the great high priestly prayers. Jesus speaking to his father, praying for us. Wow. That, we, that he recorded that, that we get to hear that is just mind-boggling. In speaking to us, he is revealed. In being revealed, he is glorified. Speaking with his people is both God's means of achieving his ends, and it's his ends. He speaks with us. So, as a way of practical encouragement, I said I would mention um, how do we experience God speaking to us on a regular basis? How do we get to do it? Um, and right now, I'll talk about a very ordinary but precious way in which he does that, um, that God has given to us to truly speak to us. It's not my sermon. Um, it's us right now here in worship. The tent of meeting. We are his, we are his temple, his tent of meeting. So take a step back. Um, 
we kind of have an abbreviated bulletin, but if you wanted to take out the bullet and, and quickly fly through it, um, I, I love uh, the ordering of the specific liturgy of the way in which um, our worship is structured. And one of the reasons I love it is a gross oversimplification of how I look at it. And how I look at it is God speaks and his people respond. Okay, that's that's the structure of this thing we call our liturgy and our, our service. That's one way to look at it. There's multiple ways of looking at it, but that's the oversimplistic way I love to look at it. We participate in God speaking with his people every week when we gather together to worship. He speaks, we respond. It occurs in this liturgy over and over and over again. He speaks from his word, we respond. We respond out loud, in speech and in song, with words. So open the bulletin if you want and just fly through it if you want and simply look at the pieces. What does it start with? It doesn't start with the, book, with the announcements. Our worship service starts with the call to worship. He speaks. He calls. And what's the next thing we do? We sing in response to that call. We stand and sing his praises. We come to him in prayer. He calls us to confess to him. We confess together out loud. He calls us to confess to him from his word. And we confess to him and to each other. From his word, he, he assures us of our forgiveness of sins in Christ. We then present our gifts, tithes, and offerings to him. But think about this, guys. We give him the gifts and the offerings after he's forgiven us, not before. We don't need to bring the gifts, tithes, and offerings in order that we might be forgiven. We give it in response to the fact that we're forgiven. He speaks, he acts, we respond. After his offering, we sing his praise. We hear from him in the public reading of his word by a member of our gathering. We pray to him together. We sing his praise in response to our prayers, answered already in Jesus Christ. One of the reasons we sing right after we pray is we're praising him for the fact that he has already answered those prayers. All of the prayers that we've ever prayed, we may not see them temporarily answered the way we want them to be answered, but they are all answered in Jesus Christ. And we can stand together and sing praise that our prayers are answered. We hear from him in his word, the sermon, and then we confess together who he is. We pass his peace to each other based on the peace that he has declared to us again in his word. We move together to the upper room. We come to his table and share his body and his blood, and we sing in response. Then we receive his blessing until we gather again. God speaks, we respond. God speaks, we respond. He speaks from his word about the word, his son. He gives us ears to hear, and we respond in faith. He calls to all who would hear and to those who would have faith in Christ, let them come into the upper room and sup with him. Feast in him until he comes again. So treasure it. Every week we gather together, God speaks to us. And it truly does mean he does still speak with his people. Amen.